What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Stephen Kotler is a New York Times best-selling author an award-winning journalist and the co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project He is one of the world's leading experts on ultimate human performance. In this episode, Stephen talks about tapping into flow to open the next level of human performance. In a state of flow, people experience heightened creativity, increased performance, and accelerated problem solving. Stephen unveils what groups like Google and the Navy SEALs are doing to improve their performance. Stephen, welcome to the show. I cannot wait to hear more about your books and about flow state. How are you doing today? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So let's jump right into it. Let's start when you were 30 battling Lyme's disease. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, when I, you know, as you, as you said, when I was 30, I got, uh, I got Lyme and, uh, for anybody who doesn't know what Lyme's like, it's sort of like the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. And I was, I was functionless. I could work, think, move maybe 10% of the time. I, I was sort of Physically ill, I couldn't walk across a room. Cognitively, it was worse. I like I was just a disaster. I, and I had nearly bankrupted myself trying to find a cure. The doctors had pulled me off meds, and there was nothing anybody knew uh, if they could ever you know do anything for me. And nobody knew if I was ever going to get better. And so I decided because at that point all I was going to be was a burden to my friends and my family going forward that I was going to end my life. Um, and you know had had pills and booze and. It was a question of when and not, you know, how or all that stuff. And, and, and a friend of mine that was living in L.A. at the time showed up my doorstep and she would not leave my house until I went surfing with her. And it was the most ridiculous request. I like I mean, it was the silliest thing. I, I like I couldn't walk across a room and I hadn't been surfing in like five years. And the thought of getting back on the board, it, like it was just absurd. But she would not leave and would not leave and would not leave. And finally, after like four hours just to get her to shut up, I was like, fine, let's go surfing today. I can always kill myself tomorrow. Like, whatever. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And, like, they had to, like, carry me to the car, basically, and they drove me out to Sunset Beach. If you know anything about surfing in L.A., Sunset Beach is the wimpiest beginner wave in the world. <laughs> they gave me a board the size of a Cadillac and, like, carried me, basically, out to the break. And the waves were tiny. It was a small day. Sorry about that. Um there was really nobody out and I was out there, I don't know, 30 seconds when a wave came and muscle memory must have taken over. I, I paddled a couple times, spun my board around, popped up to my feet and just popped up into a dimension I didn't even know existed. Like it was the strangest, most profound altered state experience I'd ever had. Time seemed to slow down. Um, I felt like I had panoramic vision, like I could see out of the back of my head. And the strangest part about the whole thing is I felt amazing. Like all my pain was gone. I felt, I felt fantastic and it felt so good. I caught four more waves that day. And by the fifth wave, I was just, I was done. I was disassembled. They drove me home and put me into bed and had to bring me food for like 14 days. Cause I was too sick to get out of bed to make myself a meal in the kitchen, like 40 feet away. <laughs> and on the, uh, 15th or 16th day of the day I could walk again. Like I got up and I hitched a ride or, you know, with a neighbor <laughs> down to the beach and I did it again. And another 10 days in bed after that. And then I did it again. And slowly over about six to eight months when the only thing I was doing different in my life was going surfing. I went from about 10% functional up to about 80% functional. And the only thing that was happening was I was having these profound altered states of consciousness while I was surfing. And they felt like mystical experiences to me. And so even by the end of it, like, this, and, you know, this raised a couple of deep questions for me first, like the hell is going on, right? Like surfing is not a known cure for chronic autoimmune conditions, part one. And part two, like I was having quasi mystical experiences out surfing in the waves and I'm a science guy. Yeah. <laughs> as I mystical anything. And I certainly not while surfing, like it, what you couldn't find anything that was more like new agey, wishy-washy. Like it, it was a joke to me, but Lyme is only fatal if it gets into your brain. And I was pretty certain that the only reason I was having these experiences was even though I was feeling better, I was pretty sure the disease was creeping into my brain and it was actually killing me. So I lit out on a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on. And what I, 
you know, learned along the way was that the states of consciousness I was experiencing have a name. We call them flow states. And we'll get back to the definition of that in half a second. And, you know, what, what I quickly learned, and we could, again, we can come back to this later, but when we move into flow, the brain releases a, a, a great number of neurochemicals. And these chemicals do two things that are critical here. One is they reset the nervous system. So Lyme disease is essentially a nervous system gone haywire, like any autoimmune condition. So when I was moving to flow, these neurochemicals that show up in the, in the state were resetting my nervous system, calming it down, flushing the stress hormones out of my system, which is a huge boost to health. And simultaneously, they all boost the immune system. In fact, Herb Benson, who's been at, who's at Harvard, who worked out a lot of kind of the neurobiology of, of flow and especially the neurochemistry, believes that a lot of the cases of so-called spontaneous healing that people are looking at are actually this mechanism at work. So the second, the, the, the other thing that I quickly figured out is that, and this is probably much more relevant to your listeners, is that the same state of consciousness that was taking me from really subpar back to normal was helping normal people go all the way up to Superman. And that's the, I think, you know, just as big of a deal. Wow. I mean, can you hit more on the actual definition of a flow state? Yeah, let's just start there. So first of all, lots of synonyms, flow states, runners high, being in the zone. If you play basketball, it's being unconscious. If you're a stand-up comic, it's the forever box, right? Flow is a technical term. It's defined as an optimal state of consciousness when we feel our best and we perform our best. And more specifically, it refers to kind of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on, on what we're doing on the task at hand that everything else just kind of disappears. So your sense of self vanishes, time dilates, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely, it slows down or it speeds up. Um, and throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. I mean, I'm so curious as well, during these periods, when you, in between the surfing, you got the 14 days, the 10 days, what's, what's the narrative like in your head? Are you just so looking forward to the next time you can get out there on the board and experience this flow state? Or are you just so disheveled, you can't even think clearly? So can I, can I give you two seconds of neurochemistry before I answer your question? Because it'll, then it'll make sense. Hell yeah, you're the thought leader on this. Okay, so when we move into flow, the brain does a whole bunch of shit. But as I mentioned, it releases um, a bunch of neurochemicals, five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce. All of them are performance enhancing chemicals. They amplify muscle reaction time, increase strength, or, or, or you know, increase your pain tolerance, do a whole bunch of stuff like that. Um, they also have you know, big cognitive effects as well, but they're also all pleasure drugs. They're the most, they're five of the most addictive pleasure chemicals the brain can produce. And flow is just about the only time we get all five at once. And to give you, so just to put this in comparison, when you fall in love, right, that, the, that like those early days of love, which many people think is one of the best feelings on earth, that's two neurochemicals. That's norepinephrine and dopamine primarily. That's what drives that system. That's what feels like that. Flow is norepinephrine, dopamine, and three other pleasure drugs. Just so like double romantic love in terms of like how good it feels and how addictive it is. So what flow gave me was a, like I had no idea I was ever going to feel that good again. And the, I, the fact that that might even be possible because my pain load on a daily basis was insane, right? Uh, one of the things that Lyme does is it produces like really advanced rheumatoid arthritis. Like if you look at, um, you can find people with Lyme disease. I, I had a friend who was 27 years old. And if you looked at her fingers, they had been twisted into complete circles by the disease. She looked like she had like the fingers of like a, like a 110 year old witch in a Disney movie like that. And honest to God, and that's what the disease did. So it's extremely painful. The pain load um, is really like intense. So just the idea that, Oh my God, like there's this place I can go where there's no pain. And where I can use my body like I used to be able to use my body, that alone was amazing. On top of, you know, the, all the other things that came. So the addictive nature of the state, right? Researchers talk about flow as they don't like the term addictive for obvious reasons. So they, they talk about flow as autotelic, which means an end in itself or the source code of intrinsic motivation. But what it really means is once an experience starts producing flow, we will go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it, which was exactly what was happening to me, right? 
Think about my life. It was spent on a couch doing almost nothing. I couldn't read because I couldn't remember the beginning of a sentence by the time I got to the end of a sentence. My short-term memory is gone. About the only thing I could do at that point was watch the LA Clippers play basketball. I couldn't watch the Lakers because they played half court. It was too slow. And I would get what was going on. But the Clippers, it was that, that was that like crazy early run and gun audio, uh, style of play. It was fast enough that I could actually pay attention. That was so literally like that was all I could do. I could watch reruns of West Wing too because the dialogue was so fast that it like it worked with my brain. My brain. <laughs> literally, I couldn't do anything. Else. Everything else, I just laid laid around and moaned. Um, so like to have these periods of bliss in between were incredible, and to start getting healthier along the way was incredible. And you know, within four months. I was clear-headed enough that I was writing again. And then the flow I was getting in the ocean was getting magnified by the flow I was getting from writing and create, you know, creative flow. And it started to form this feedback loop that really, you know, sort of spiraled me to health. So it was really, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And I, you know, the, I know I'm talking a lot on this answer, no, but the other this. last thing I want to say is I broke at 80 four bones at this point. I've been in bed for three years with Lyme disease. I've had my fair share of stuff along the way. And I will tell you that the worst thing I've ever experienced is watching yourself go insane, which is what Lyme disease is. The most common misdiagnosis is paranoid schizophrenia. Um, and for a reason, like you, and you can literally watch, you know, you're no longer in reality. You just don't know where reality is anymore and you can't find it. And, and so to be able to get your my brain back after three years of that was astounding. Yeah, I love that story so much because of how scary. I mean, I'm sure the listeners can really picture this, the fear you must have had at that point. And then to get out of that in a flow state, it's unbelievable. So when you're talking about flow, how long can a flow session usually last? So open question. Research is all over the place. Here's what, here's what we sort of know. And then I'll tell you the weird caveat. What we sort of know is that, for example, norepinephrine and dopamine are the brain's principal focusing chemicals. They burn out after about 20 minutes. TED Talks are 20 minutes long for this reason. Most people have a maximum deep focus and tension span of about 20 minutes, right? Unless they, they've trained it otherwise because of how these neurochemicals work. Flow seems to last about an hour and a half on average. With, with like a really strong, like 20 minute, half hour peak, which probably when there's a lot of norepinephrine and dopamine in your system, that's on average. And nobody that I know has really taken a long look at this. So we don't even have good data. That's just anecdotal data from talking to people. All that said, Alan Lukes, who runs Big Brother, Big Sister, uh, found that altruism triggers a flow state. And we, we sort of know why now. Um, and it's known as helper's high. And on average, helper's high will outlast a flow state by, uh, you know, like that hour and a half. It'll last for a day, sometimes two. And you get a lot of heightened creativity in flow that's really well established and well measured. And, and, and we're taking a look at it in a creativity study we're running right now to kind of go deeper. But um, Teresa Mobley at Harvard figured out that heightened creativity that you get in flow will outlast the flow state by a day, sometimes two. And on the last end of all this, you see this, I've seen this myself when I've gotten into like crazy flow states and written half a book in two weeks where like every time I come back to work, I'm back into flow where you see it a lot in startups. Startups um, create, tend to generate a lot of flow. And so like leading up to a launch, you'll see people like they'll pop out of flow, but pretty much they'll spend three months in flow if it's a good company and it's really everybody's come together kind of thing. So my answer is an hour and a half usually, but there are these not so, you know, random outlying cases that say a lot longer, but neurobiologically, you can't live in flow. It's a periodic state. It's just, you know, to peak state that you get for about an hour and a half at a time. Which book of yours did you do in two weeks? I would love to hear that story. So it's a funny story. It's small <laughs> furry comedy here. So here's small furry prayer, which is my book about the relationship between humans and animals. And it's April books due in October. And in April, I turn in the first draft. And my editor comes back to me and says, first 110 pages are, are, are pretty solid. A little bit of work needs in there. The next 200 pages suck and you have to start over and rewrite them. 
which by the way no, had never happened to me before with a book it was like startling and but i was like i'm a, you know i'm a gamer i'm like okay you know i'll fix it whatever so you're cool i've never had writer's block in my life not a problem i could fix this well april passes and i can't write and june uh, may and june and july august and i like literally have not written a goddamn word i cannot put down a word nothing is working and it is the last week of August and a friend of mine calls me up and says, Hey man, they're running the lifts at Parito mountain for downhill mountain biking. Do you want to go? And I was like, I've never been downhill mountain biking. I've got a cross country bike. Do you think I can ride that? And a friend was like, I don't know, maybe we can, you know, we can try it. And, and so we, like I stopped at the thrift store in Los Alamos and bought like hockey pads and like anything I could do. Right. Like, I nobody ever looked dumber on a downhill mountain bike, and I, you have to understand that I blew out my knees when I was sixteen. So I did not ride a bicycle from the time I was sixteen to the time I was forty, and I'd only been on a bike six times before this. So six cross country rides, um, and then I go downhill mountain bike. And Parito is was created by the guy who invented Red Bull Rampage, the gnarliest downhill mountain bike contest in the world. So it's literally like learning to downhill mountain bike in hell and run one is, Oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> run two is, Oh my God, there's no possible way a bike can do this. Run three is, Oh my God, this is so much fucking fun. It should be illegal. And I get kicked into the deepest flow state I've ever seen. I come home. I sit down to look at the book because I'm still in flow after driving back from the mountain. And I start writing. And two weeks later, I basically stop. And I turn the book in. And here's the weird part. My editor comes back to me. And she's got some comments in the first 110 pages, right, where, where I was sort of did some work. But the part I wrote in flow they have no edits. It's 200 pages with no edits. Do you understand how unbelievably weird and impossible that, that is? It doesn't happen, yeah. It doesn't happen ever. And the book comes out, and it was a bestseller and nominated for a Pulitzer. So, like, I, and, and here's the funny part about all that, those accolades is, honest to God, I have no idea who wrote the book. <laughs> what did your editor say when you handed that in? She loved it. She thought it was great. She, she was like, wow, you did it. Fantastic. She had no idea. She didn't know the story. I didn't tell. I mean, you don't call your editor. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and you're like, yeah, by the way, you might have wasted that money because I'm fucking stuck and I suck <laughs> and I'm stupid and I'm small <laughs> and I deserve to die. Yeah, you don't say those things. You keep that inside. <laughs> I'm like, tends to freak out the, the ad. Yeah, I can imagine so. You don't want to freak out the money people. So what was it about the downhill mountain biking that really triggered that long lasting flow state? So flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And the really easy way to explain this is that flow can, of the many things we know about it, we know that it can only happen when our attention is focused on the right here, right now, right? So that's what all these triggers do. They drive attention into the present moment. If I was putting it more formally, I would say these triggers are 20 of the things that evolution shaped our brain to pay the most attention to. And there are 10 individual triggers, triggers that'll drive an individual into flow, me or you on our own, me mountain biking kind of thing. And then there's 10 group triggers that produce a state known as group flow, which is a collective group uh, flow state. And you've all taken part in one. Like if you've taken part in a great brainstorming session or sung in a church choir or played in a band or acted in a play or taken part in a great brainstorming session or watched a great fourth quarter comeback in football or, you know, gone to a concert and got swept up in the crowd and the band and the music and became one with it all, right? Like that's all group flow. Um, and there's 10 triggers for that. And of the triggers for group individual flow, novelty, complexity, unpredictability, and risk, either physical or intellectual or emotional, it doesn't matter, are all individual flow triggers. So mountain biking and action sports in general are packed with flow triggers. Tremendous amounts of novelty, tremendous amounts of complexity, tremendous amounts of unpredictability, and risk off the track. And downhill mountain biking, like, you have to understand that, like, I 
I've been downhill on biking for seven seasons now. Six of them had ended in injury. <laughs> Taking me to the hospital, right? Two broken collarbones, one absolutely shredded rotator cuff, one broken ocular bone. Um, I didn't, the, I, one season didn't get ended, but I had to take three months off in the middle because I broke two ribs. Um, three or four concussions. You should have kept those hockey pads on. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I ride in full armor, like the most. You know, <laughs> Early expensive. Oh, I learned this. I'm like, dude, like you just hit the ground and you break things. And the thing about DH riders that are so special, it's a group of people who are like, this is so good and so challenging and so interesting and so much more fun that we are willing to go to the hospital on a regular basis for it. Um, which is exactly what it is. Like nobody, you don't get on a downhill mountain bike and say, oh, I'm going to do this sport and never get injured. You get on a downhill mountain bike and within, you know, a day you're like, okay, I'm going to go to the hospital. That's what's going to happen here. Are there different levels of flow? Do you experience the highest level of flow when you're doing the downhill mountain biking? So there's two answers to that question. The first answer is flow is a spectrum experience. Um, so flow has, depending if you agree with my, <coughs> us at the Flow Genome Project or, or a psychologist like me, hi, chicks at me, hi, seven you. to ten. 10, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Seven to 10 core characteristics. And um, so it's it's a measurable state. It's a definable state. And I mentioned some of those core characteristics, the vanishing of self, time dilation, uh, total focus in the present moment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you can be in a state of macro flow, which is when all of these characteristics show up at once, volume turned up to 11 which is such a profound, it's what happened to me surfing, right? For the first 50 years that researchers were studying this state from the 1880s to the 1940s, basically, late 40s, they really thought they were looking at a, at a mystical experience, meaning an experience only had by spiritual and religious people because it was so out of this world. And it wasn't until Abraham Maslow came along in the 50s and found, he was studying success, and he found that flow was an absolute commonality among the most successful people on earth that he was studying and then he realized that everybody he was studying was an atheist. So suddenly, right, mystical experiences were out. People yeah, yeah. <laughs> came next, right? Like that's that's what happened. But like macro flow, when they're all there, it's a mystical experience. It's, you know, really, really weird. Um, and um, on, on the other end of the on the other end of the spectrum, um, is microflow, which is what happens when only a couple of flows defining characteristics show up at once. So you'll get, say, uninterrupted concentration in the present moment, and you forget bodily function. So you sit down to write that quickie email, and you look up an hour later, and you've written an essay, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, holy crap, I've written an essay, and I got a P. That's microflow. Um, and there's, there's a whole spectrum in between, um, and you can be anywhere on the spectrum. And Different people are susceptible to different triggers different ways. Some of this is genetic, right? Like dopamine production is and risk tolerances and things like that. A lot of that is genetic. Um, so, and that stuff gets set up early. Um, and we don't know how much is epigenetics and how much is nurture. Like really, nobody's really clarified this stuff that we are on the front end of trying to start a research project to look at it, but it's, it's hard and murky. And I don't know if we're going to get there. With Black Friday at the end of this week, our friends at Four Sigmatic have some unbelievable deals for you. From Friday, November 24th to Tuesday, November 28th, they're offering huge discounts up to 50% off. Leave the mall crowds behind this Black Friday and stock up on all your favorite functional mushroom products from the comfort of your own home. Whether you're looking to chill out, rest up, or feel energized, there's a mushroom blend for you and just about everyone on your list. To get these savings, head to foursigmatic.com and use discount code WGYT or follow the link in the show notes. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Distilled utilizes the same fabrics, factories, and wash houses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. The result? Top-quality denim without the retail runaround. 
Just go to dstld.com and see where minimalist design meets maximum comfort. They have a 100% fit guarantee, offering free shipping and returns until you find the perfect pair. Inspired by the creative class, Distilled is the perfect brand for those who have other things to think about besides getting dressed. You'll look good no matter what with Distilled. Distilled has been featured in Forbes, Time, and TechCrunch, as well as on denim-clad celebrities in GQ and Men's Health. You can find the brand's amazing selection of outwear, leather jackets, t-shirts, and more using the same principles of high-grade materials at low-end cost. Distilled is your answer to elevated style without elevated prices. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. So we've talked a lot about action sports, which you hit on in your book, Rise of Superman, which I loved. I constantly go back and start reading that. But in your latest book, Stealing Fire, you guys talk about SEAL Team 6 and how they started to tap into flow. I would love the listeners to learn more about that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, for sure. And I, you, you have to understand that like, we were shocked by what we discovered when we got to work with the SEALs and it was such a privilege, but um, let me, it's, it's the, best, the best way to do this is monetarily because it's so easy. So if you want to get somebody to SEAL Team 6, right, what they call DevGru, which is, you know, the, the sort of, not really the top of the SEALs, but it, it's their hostage rescue team. It's their, it's kind of the peak of it. It costs $3.5 million. Jeez. That's how much we're going to spend to train that soldier. Um, and that's, you know, they have to rotate through a couple other SEAL teams to get there. And that's basic training and buds and it's blah, blah, blah. Of that money, about $1.5 million is physical, you know, endurance and, and perseverance and resilience and all that stuff that they're amazing at, right? Their physical quality is off the charts and skill acquisition. Here's how you fire a guy, right? All that stuff. The next $2 million is spent training them to get into group flow. Two because, million out of that on group flow. Yeah, essentially. Most everything they do at the kill house, which is the heart of like SEAL Team 6 training, where they taught the Hoskins Rescue House, where they're measuring 50 different biometrics on you know every soldier moving through it. They're doing all of it because if they're not so... In group flow, among the other things that happen in flow, so norepinephrine and dopamine boost pattern recognition in the brain. So when you're moving as a team, it's all about pattern recognition and spatial awareness and things like that. And the, the SEALs, it's critically important because one of the reasons they're so successful is they practice what's known as dynamic subordination, which is a fancy way of saying the guy who knows what to do next gets to be the leader and everybody else immediately falls in behind right? It's a perfect system if you're in group flow. It, otherwise, it's a disaster. So to like do what they do, they have to be in group flow and you know, lives depend on it every day. Um, so everything they're doing is, is aimed towards it. And um, so it was really interesting to get to spend time with them. Yeah. I mean, there were so many stories in the book. The one I loved is about um, their foreign language training and how quickly they can do that. And you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, my mind is still blown when, when I go back and read that. Okay, so I have to, I'm, important caveat. We can't, that's in the book. We probably should pull it out of the book. Um, we had confirmation and then it got wobbly and now we can't tell. But what we heard or what like we were told is what, so the first thing you need to know is that we've managed to, get a fairly good read on what is producing flow in the brain and the body. There's huge holes you can drive a bus through, but we've got a grip on it. And we've discovered also that you can use technology to hack some of these conditions. And for example, an old, what the SEALs did is they took a very old uh, consciousness shifting te technology, the isolation float tank, right? Which was developed by John Lilly in the sixties. Um, who was originally experimenting with kind of brain implants that altered consciousness and wanted to find a non-invasive way to do that work and started working with flow tanks. And they produced kind of low-grade flow states by themselves. The Navy SEALs then added in a neurofeedback layer, right? And we've got really interesting neurofeedback data on flow as well. And we can use neurofeedback to steer people to flow. They put the two things together added in 
sound and light and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And then they started pumping in foreign language training and they reduced the timing. So the SEALs can get deployed to like five different theaters in the world at any one point. So they have to be able to learn foreign languages really quickly because they're behind enemy lines. It's really important. And I'm going to get this wrong. The best they had it down to is either six months or nine months. And I just can't remember. I, you, I, it's been a while since I looked at that page in the book. Um, I apologize. Yeah, I think it was six months. I think it's six months too. But uh, they got it down to six weeks is what we were told. So mind-blowing <laughs> mind reduction by doing it this way. And it, here's the thing. I don't know if it's true. Like I, at this point, I can't tell on that particular thing. Like we think that somebody basically told us about something that we weren't supposed to know about. And so like nobody, that's why we haven't been able to hear about it again. That said, what we do know, and this is research done by advanced brain monitoring with the defense department uh, and DARPA snipers and radar operators in flow learn 470% faster than normal. And we know why. Learning it shorthand for how learning works in the brain is that the more neurochemicals that show up during experience, the better chance it'll move from short-term holding into long-term storage. Flows this huge neurochemical dump, so massively amplified learning as a result, which is why flow in schools and education is such a big deal to so many people right now. Jesus. And then, I mean, you guys brought or talked about Sergey Brin, Larry Page out of Google. They're tapping into this as well, aren't they? So there's a lot of people doing this work in the world, but I just did the Flow Genome Project. You know, the, the number of Fortune 500 companies that we've spoken to or worked with or what, what I like to say is, so let me just give you some numbers uh, and then I'll answer your question in a second. So McKinsey did a 10-year study. They found that because flow is so addictive, because it boosts motivation so much, uh, top executives reported being five times more productive in flow or 500% more productive. Creativity studies run by a lot of people, including the Flow Genome Project, find creativity boosted 400 to 700%. We're seeing learning at 470%. Now, understand, and we're seeing it last over time, understand that if a self-help program gives you a 5% boost in performance and it lasts for three months, you can. it's a gold standard. You've got a billion-dollar company built on the backs of it. And we're seeing step functions worth of change um, over time is the first thing. The second thing is, and I'll give you a great example. We uh, teamed up with Google three years ago and did a joint learning exercise. We took 80 Googlers um, from all over the company. So marketing facilities, coding, engineers, whatever, trained them up in four high performance basics. And I mean basics like sleep hygiene, get seven to eight hours of sleep and I'd use a sleep monitor to track it. And um, four of flows triggers. Here's how you use four of them. Here's how you deploy them in a business environment. Here's how you do it at your home, blah, blah, blah. And we gave them about an hour of homework a day and we trained them up over six weeks. On the back end, we saw a 35 to 80% increase in flow. Jeez. Huge spikes. We have, we teach a flow fundamentals course. It's available on flow genome project websites, digitally delivered. It's six weeks long. We do pre and post testing. We measure seven core flow traits and we're seeing on average a 70% increase in flow. And this is not to say our Kung Fu is so great. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who the hell knows? Take the, you know, take our stuff and you let me know. What I am saying is this stuff is really easy to train. We're all hardwired for it. So once you understand kind of the operating system a little bit better, you can get good fast. So that what we're learning is that it, you can train it up. And what we're seeing in organizations across the board is all the top organizations in the world are starting to do this because you can't, if I, so let me, let me put it to you this way at Patagonia, right? The court often voted the number one place to work in America or one of the top places, the outdoor retailer. Their corporate headquarters is right on the Pacific Ocean. And they have one, they, they've been into flow stuff since the 90s. And chicks at me high did the early kind of work. And they've been kind of working with it. And they've reduced it down to one um, thing. So autonomy is a flow trigger, right? We pay more attention to those things that we get to steer and create ourselves, right? Um, Focus is attention. So they give their employees autonomy. They get to make their own hours. And because everybody's an outdoor athlete and their corporate headquarters is right on the Pacific, 
there's a house policy known as let my people go surfing. So whenever waves are breaking outside, you can walk out of a meeting, you can hang up an important phone call. doesn't matter what you're doing. If there are waves are breaking, you're allowed to go surfing. That's and the an reason amazing is policy, huh? <laughs> you come back, right? If you come back in flow and you're 500% more productive and 400% more creative and learning is jacked. Like, I mean, are you kidding? Of course you're doing this, right? And the point is, if you're not doing this stuff, your competition is at this point, right? Even forget even flow. Let's forget flow for a second. Let's just say mindfulness, right? Mindfulness training is great for focus and attention. Doesn't produce an exact flow state, but it you know it's a, it's great as training for flow for sure. Um, trains the same muscles. Forty four percent of U.S. companies are rolling out mindfulness programs this year, right? I mean, that, how big an industry is that then? can't remember the numbers in rise of Superman. I know yoga is already over a billion dollars. Um, and a lot of that is corporate yoga, but I think, I think the mindful, I want to say the mindfulness industry is $23 billion at this point, but I could, I could be pulling that out of my butt. Yeah. I but could, I mean, we, we know that number is definitely up there with that amount of, of people doing it. It's, um, it's, I mean, and I, I, so I was in New York two weeks ago and I'm going to leave the company's name out of it, but I was on wall street, not on wall street, but I was, it was a wall. It was a, it was a firm and it was a firm that does works in finance and does the most conservative leveraged buyouts, uh, infrastructure, right? This is the, these are the most conservative pockets of finance. And it was the most conservative, like usually you walk into these rooms and, and the men are in three piece suits and the women are, you know, well-dressed. The women were in more, in were worse power suits than the guys in this room. Like I've never, it, it was just one of those rooms and there were a lot of them. And I was, you know, training them up in flow and couldn't believe, you know, and talking to people who had read stealing fire and knew all about like, not just flow, but they had interested in, you know, microdosing and creativity and all the other kind of ecstatic technologies that are coming online. Um, it's really astounding how deeply this is penetrating into global business culture. Can you talk more about that? You mentioned microdosing and the global business culture. I mean, I want to, I want someone who isn't fully entrenched in that to get an idea of what's actually transpiring right now in Silicon Valley, on New York, what's happening. So, not like, so we're, I mean, I don't know, Phil, before we answer that Tell me, what is your reader? Should I start at the beginning with microdosing or like, what do, what do people know? Yeah. Quick overview, microdosing okay. and then, and then dive so, all in. Let, okay. So let me, let me, let's walk it back to one more bit of foundational research that underlies stealing fire. So we've been talking about flow, right? One altered state of consciousness. Turns out that there's what's known as the ecstatic spectrum. This is kind of the upper possibility space of human experience. Ecstatic comes from the Greek word ecstasis which means to move beyond myself, meaning change the channel of normal waking consciousness and a state that is filled with information that we don't normally have access to, heightened intuition, heightened creativity, that sort of thing, right? So there's a spectrum and it includes flow states and awe experiences and trance states and meditative states and contemplative states and philosophically contemplative states and yogic states and states that are produced by you know certain types of sexual technologies uh psychedelics most so-called mystical experiences the, all these things neurobiologically are very 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 similar the knobs and levers being tweaked in the brain are mostly the same so what we're seeing now is all of these various techniques are going wide and the reason we're seeing it at a really simple level is a lot of the so-called skills that we need for the 20th century, whether we're talking creativity or cooperation and collaboration or empathy, et cetera, et cetera. We've had a lot of trouble training people up in them. And the reason is they're not skills. You can't train them up as skills. They're actually states of mind. And what we need to do is train up people in states of consciousness. So what we're seeing is, you know, massive boost. And the easiest way to explain this is actually to come in through anxiety. So the most extreme form of anxiety is essentially post-traumatic stress disorder. And back in the early 2000s, the uh, a psychologist named, a psychiatrist named Michael Mithohoffer uh, down in South Carolina teamed up with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research, and they used 
MDMA therapy um, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in victims of rape and child abuse and soldiers returning from combat from Afghanistan and Iraq. And what they discovered is after one to three sessions of psychedelic therapy, you get a significant reduction in PTSD symptoms or total remission. And that it has lasted, that was five years ago, and it has persisted. So they went, wow, that's cool. Can we? Then they redid that, basically same experiment at Camp Pendleton with over a thousand soldiers, and they substituted surfing and talk therapy for psychedelic therapy. So it's the exact same protocol, like psychedelic therapy is talk therapy plus the psychedelic, right? Same protocol, they just use surfing as a trigger for flow and ran the same experiment. And they found that five weeks of surfing and flow in group talk therapy was enough to produce a significant reduction in symptoms or total remission. They redid the experiment again, this time with meditation, and found, uh, again in soldiers with PTSD, they found that four weeks of meditation produces similar results. So what you have is three different ecstatic techniques, right? Totally, you would never think of surfing, you know, psychedelics and meditation are not normally seen as bedfellows, <laughs> right? But there are three different techniques for altering consciousness that produce essentially the same results over different time scales. And that's the big news because the big news is not that this or that technology works to do this or that. It's that we have options. We have choices. We can make choices based on like, if you've got a severe, and by the way, this is now why the FDA has speed approved the treatment of anxiety and depression with PTA, with MDMA, right? They're, they're now starting to test that. It's not just PTSD. It's going down to just normal anxiety and depression. Um, same sorts of treatments because it's been so effective. Same thing with the other methodologies. But the point is that we have options now. You People have different risk tolerances. They have different preferences. They have different whatever. We have options. And that's fantastic. And business is taking advantage of it. And the craziest version, I think, and I think a lot of people think is microdosing, which is taking sub- perceptual doses of either LSD or psilocybin. So you do not get consciousness shifting effects at a conscious level, but the neurobiology underneath the psychedelics gets triggered. You feel a little altered for sure, a tiny little bit altered. Um, but what you're seeing is massive boosts over time, like treatment for anxiety and depression and all kinds of other stuff like that. And massive boosts in creativity and, and things like that's in high performance. And so there's a tremendous amount of microdosing going on in Silicon Valley and in Hollywood. Um, and I've seen it in both places and at levels of companies that you cannot possibly imagine. Like we met with major, you know, fortune 100 tech companies whose names will go unmentioned. And they're telling me that, you know, whole teams of engineers are microdosing on at work on a regular basis. Are these companies financing that? No, no, I don't think they know. Do you I think mean, they should be? What? Do you think they should be? I think it's against the law for me to say that they should. <laughs> um, but and, and and honestly, like personal experience, I try. I've tried microdosing at least with psilocybin. I haven't tried with LSD, but I've tried with psilocybin, and I found it very unpleasant was not for me, went the exact opposite direction. I didn't like it at all. It made me irritable, in fact. Hmm. So maybe I did it wrong, right? Could 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 be user error, perhaps, but, <laughs> you know, I've tried it, you know, I, I, I've tried it a couple times and let other people who know what they're doing guide the experience because I was so sure that I did it wrong the first time because it was so unpleasant, I had to do it again. And it was just as unpleasant, um, even, you know, so not for everyone. Um, and certain people, I, like I was, I just did an event in New York where, you know, the, the difference between the coasts on these topics is enormous. I was talking about this, these same topics in the same way in a room in New York with, uh, 50 of the world's top chief strategy officers. And a bunch of them were from the West coast and they absolutely loved what I was talking about. And a guy we were talking about, so if you want the cheapest flow hack in the world, 20 minutes of, of, of cardio 
just till it gets quiet up in your brain, followed by a cup of coffee, followed by a joint, will essentially mimic neurobiologically a flow state. So somebody asked me a question, is there a way, is there flow in a pill? And I said, no, this is, you know, this is as far as people have taken it, but like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a cheap, it's a low grade flow state. It'll get, you know, it's, it's pretty close um, on, on a lot of levels. And with some training, you can really get it right there. Um, and a guy in the front row who's from New York stood up and was, he was furious that I had mentioned marijuana. And he's, he's like, why aren't we talking about meditation and peace and love? And why do we have to be talking about drugs and action sports? And what's wrong with you people? And don't you know everybody in Silicon Valley is doing acid? And I just started <laughs> laughing. But he was deeply morally offended and it was so wrong. And so that's, and, and this was a very progressive gathering, right? This was not, right? This was a fairly progressive gather, group. Um, that really likes cutting edge ideas and likes being pushed and not everybody in the group felt this way. Um, but there's still like, this stuff is very scary and threatening to a lot of people. So it's good to know that there are options and it's not just microdosing and microdosing isn't for everybody. And, you know, there are technologies that will do things very, very similar to that. If you, you know, if you, you, do, you know, whatever is pharmacology today, it's going to be technology tomorrow. That's the other thing. Yeah, no, I just love the light you shed on these things. I, I think it was you who talked about every single day you should be reading 20 pages of a subject you know nothing on. And I think a lot of people who will be listening to this might not know as much about this subject as you're bringing light to. So it's cool to hear. I mean, you've mentioned so many different things. What's your day look like? I know you have a really early morning. You do some writing. You want to walk some people through the routine and then what you're implementing? How how long? How, how, what, how far do you want me to go into my day? Do your thing. I mean <laughs> – Whatever. Okay, so um, I'm my day starts at 4 a.m. and I try to be from my bed to my desk in under three minutes. <laughs> I do not want my brain to get out of alpha. Alpha, which is where you wake up in, much closer to the state, much closer to flow. It's much closer to where you need to be for good creativity. So I spend the first four hours of my day writing. When I am done writing, I do a gratitude practice. I don't do the, the positive psychologists recommend uh, three things you're grateful for and then write a paragraph about one of them. I like to do 10 items and um, I'm not going to talk about why there's a lot of just really cool data about what gratitude does to the perceptual system. And it allows you to notice and take in different and more positive information. And if you're being creative, you have to feed the pattern recognition system. So you need a lot of new and positive information coming in. So gratitude practice, it's followed by, I take my dogs for a hike in the back country, usually about 45 minutes. Um, I hike in a very specific way uh, to produce a low grade flow state, but I'm not going to go into that. I come back, I eat some food. I do about an hour and a half to two hours of non-writing work, usually support stuff, right? Um, I eat some lunch. I take it at 20 40 minute nap, never more than 43 minutes because I won't let myself go into REM. Once you go into REM, you need a full REM cycle to recover. But if you can limit it, if you before it, it basically resets the brain. And then I do a second long writing session followed by usually I work with my editor um, and then I go to the gym. And two or three times a week, I work half days and I hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. <laughs> and... Yeah. So yeah. that's, I mean, that's, you know, there, there's more to it. There's some active recovery at the end of the day, either like I do breathing, do breath work in a, in a, in a dry sauna, or I take an Epsom salt bath. As you mentioned, I always read 25 pages a day to restock the pattern recognition system um, a little bit. So it has raw material to work with the next day. Um, I do a bunch of other things along those lines, but that's the, that's the quick overview. What's your breath like uh, breath work program like? Uh, quickly, I start five seconds in, 10 seconds out, six seconds in, 12 seconds out. I go up to 10 and 20 and I do 10 rounds of 10 and 20. Then I do box breathing, starting with, you know, six or seven second sides. I go box breathing up to 12 second sides, three rounds per each. That's, we're about 12 minutes in now. I then do two to three minutes of kind of Wim Hof breath of fire work followed by a couple of breath holds. And then 
So one of the things we know is that if you're training creativity, focused meditation is lousy. It actually works. It, does, it works against you. And you need to do kind of an open senses Vipassana meditation where you just like let information in and notice it and tag it and don't react to it. Um, and I, so I do on the back end of that, I do eight minutes of Vipassana. Okay. So it's a, it's a 20 minute protocol and I'm in the sauna for 45 minutes. I do a 20 minute protocol and I follow it. It takes me, I read about a page a minute, right? And so I read 25 pages oh, and then awesome. I get is there one thing you've implemented in the last year that's just had a greater impact on you than anything else? I ask that because I feel like you just do so much research where I feel like there's constantly new ideas and new techniques you might be trying out. <clears throat> so there's a bunch of like nitty gritty writers hacks that I can talk about. Um, you know, I, you know, okay. So, Yes. You know, and, it, and it's a physical thing, actually. So I hurl myself down mountains at high speeds and I, you know, it's two or three times a week and I don't, I, I really like lifting weights. Um, if you're really, there, there's certain, certain exercises or have certain have different kinds of benefits in the brain and the body and lifting weights is really good for resetting your nervous system. Um, which I need to do because I tend to be fairly, you know, I tend to grab fairly hot. And, and I also, by the way, you know, I'd like the, the full disclosure, right? I rev pretty high in general and massive amounts of anxiety. Like really, I produce a tremendous amount of norepinephrine. And when that's good, it's excitement. And when it's bad, it's anxiety, the same chemical, same signal. And so, um, you know, it's, cool and interesting and makes my brain work really fast. And, you know, but it, there's a downside and it gets, you know, it, I, every time Jason Silva and I do events together, we always tell the audience, like we're up here because like it's bad upstairs <laughs> left our own devices. It's bad. upstairs. We had to get good at this to survive our brains. So like, you got to know full disclosure, right? Um, I don't remember where your question was and why I just told you that. No, no, no. We were just, I was asking you, there, there's one thing that you implemented. Oh, talk about so, lifting weights. So, so yeah, no, what I did is I added in five, uh, I added in at the end of my weightlifting workout. So I do five minutes of high intensity jump rope, five minutes of, of kind of high, like, you know, sprint, slow down, sprint, sprint, rowing. And then I got on a balance board for 10 minutes because I, I, I believe that like, Action sports, the secret to survival is uh, being able to balance under conditions of exhaustion. And that protocol at the end of my workout, and then I added a stretch, uh, you know, a little, little more stretching at the end of the workout. And, it, you know, it's 25 minutes added on to an already like hour long lifting protocol. But wow, have the results been amazing. Really? I got to yeah. implement that then. I'm, I'm glad I, I asked you that question. <laughs> I, I, here was the thing I wanted to know. Could I get away with not training cardio and still be able to get on the ski hill or the mountain bike and keep up? Because I couldn't figure out, I hike my dogs, but like there are days when I just don't want to go hard, you know, all the time, that, that sort of thing, because I'm working hard, I need whatever. So my question was, can I, can I find a way to condense my cardio? And I was talking to Brian McKenzie, right, who's sort of the guru of high-intensity CrossFit. Yeah, no, Brian and, well, he's been on this before. Okay, so Brian and I were talking about, you know, various, so the breathwork protocol that I use, Brian and I sort of like co-developed that, like, you know, he advised me on it a little bit, and the high-intensity protocol that I put at the end of my workout, I was already doing the balance stuff, um, but he sandwiched in the, the jump rope and the uh, rowing, and it's really made a difference, and, you know, it's allowed me to perform at a much higher level as an action sport athlete out having to like, you know, do cardio, which, you know, I can run. I've been running since high school and I freaking hate it. <laughs> so what's going to be next for you? What are you writing about next? Well, I just, so I just finished a novel first in 20 years. Um, I started out as a novelist. I was trained as a novelist. And so I just finished a novel. It's a near term future thriller, about the evolution of empathy and the nature of consciousness and the question in these kind of AI driven times of what is life how do we define life? Um, that was a blast. And um, 
people are starting to read it now. So I can actually say with some confidence that it's really good. <laughs> it's really, it's a lot of fun. It's laugh out loud, funny almost throughout. And it's kind of mind blowing throughout. And it's really about all these, a lot of the stuff we're talking about too. So that's been really fun. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the flow genome project, uh, launched uh, a giant flow and creativity study. And what we're really trying to get at is trying to like measure specifically what kinds of creativity are augmented in flow. What are you looking at? Is it, you know, problem solving or is it idea generation or, you know, those sorts of things like trying to get into the nitty gritty. So we don't have to say, Oh, creativity is 400% amplified. Cause what the fuck does that mean? Really? <laughs> right. And we're also trying to get much more specific about what exactly triggers creative flow and how different is it from trying to trigger other flow states. Um, and that's important for a number of reasons. One, it's important for obvious, like creativity is considered the most important 21st century skill, like what we need to thrive most. But what I've, I've seen, we so in, in trauma work and working with soldiers returning from combat and really having trouble readjusting to life, talking to action sport athletes who are trying to retire and like, They've been living such a high-risk lifestyle and they don't know how to like, it's, it's not fulfilling anymore. The ones who are most successful are the ones who take up either creative careers or at least very creative hobbies. And it's because creativity, when we link ideas together, that's a flow trigger. So you get a lot of flow through creativity and it sort of matches the fulfillment you get from the action sports. Or by the way, same thing true with endurance athletes who are retiring, right? Like, if you've been running Ironmans for 20 years and you want to stop, you're going to have to like get unaddicted or you're going to have to find a, you know, a new way to get your drug um, and meaning flow. So uh, this, the creativity study is important, I think on both aspects of that. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, we're launching the very first flow in psychedelics study. And this is in conjunction with, they're doing all the fMRI scan, brain scanning work on psychedelics at Imperial College in London. Um, really exciting work. Uh, we talked about in Stealing Fire, Robin Carr and Harris's work. And so we're teaming up with his lab to do flow at versus psychedelics, a side-by-side -side comparative altered state study, which I, 20 years ago when I started this research, that was my dream, was to be able to get progress the field to the point that somebody would, like that we could do these things side by side and say, okay, what is, you know, creative flow? What is flow better for than psychedelics and vice, you know, that sort of stuff. So I'm really excited about that stuff. Yeah. I can't wait to participate in the flow and creativity survey, get our listeners to uh, participate in that as well. And then I cannot wait to see the research on that. So yeah. we're going to have that linked up in the show notes. Certainly. Please, everybody, please take that survey. It's only 15 minutes long. It's a hard 15 minutes. You're going to have to use your brain. So you just sweat a little. It's not ready the most for it. <laughs> I, I promise that the flow in psychedelic study when it comes will be easier, but this <laughs> is hard. And so just sort of be prepared. Um, but, and we need you to finish the study. So you can't, like, if you start it, just see it all the way through you. I promise you'll be out the other end in 15 minutes. Um, and the data is invaluable and we totally appreciate it. Yep. We've got some loyal listeners, so I know they will be doing that, but man, Stephen Kotler, one of my favorite authors of all time. I cannot thank you enough for joining us today on what got you there. Don, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. With Black Friday at the end of this week, our friends at Four Sigmatic have some unbelievable deals for you. From Friday, November 24th to Tuesday, November 28th, they're offering huge discounts up to 50% off. Leave the mall crowds behind this Black Friday and stock up on all your favorite functional mushroom products from the comfort of your own home. Whether you're looking to chill out, rest up, or feel energized, there's a mushroom blend for you and just about everyone on your list. To get these savings, head to foursigmatic.com and use discount code WGYT or follow the link in the show notes. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day.
Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. DSTLD, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, What got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.